0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show first time listeners finding the show welcome aboard always happy to have you hey go over to the website take a look at counterpunch plus this is our subscriber section this is a best way to support counterpunch to help keep the lights on help keep this project going we're coming up on 30 years now 30 years is quite a long time for a publication on the left and the importance of having independent uh, left-wing platforms these days is ever more important as we see so many things seemingly changing the information landscape every week so With that said, uh, go over to Counterpunch Plus, get that subscription, really appreciate it. Speaking of other ways of supporting Counterpunch, you can support us by supporting our friends, and we have one of our friends with us today, one of the, I would say, preeminent Marxist historians we have working today. He is a friend, he is a great scholar. Doug Green is with us. Uh, Doug is the author of two important books, the one we're going to highlight here today, his brand new book, Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic socialism out, uh, well, sometime around when you're listening to this uh, conversation. I would also recommend his previous book, Communist Insurgent, Blanqui's Politics of Revolution. With that said, Doug Green, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thank you, Eric. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Hey, really happy to have you, and I want to commend you on this very important accomplishment, this book. I think it's a very important contribution to a lot of the discussion we have on the left. Obviously, uh, Michael Harrington himself as an individual, we'll get to, but uh, DSA as an important organization on the constellation of the left. And hey, what is it? Where does it come from? Very important to understand this. So let's talk about uh, Michael Harrington a little bit. Who is this Doug, why in the world are you a Marxist historian, a very serious historian in your own right? Why are you spending all this time reading about, writing about, talking about Michael Harrington? Why a whole book on this man?
1: So Michael Harrington is probably the most important democratic socialist figure in the latter half of the 20th century in the United States. He was an author, a public intellectual and a political organizer. The book he's most famous for is called The Other America. Which was published in the mid 60s about poverty and was very important on the Great Society. And he was also, as a political activist, he was head of the Socialist Party of America, um, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, and Democratic Socialists of America. And he was their founder and leader. And the reason why I devoted so much time to Harrington is DSA. Is now the largest nominally socialist organization in the US since the 1940s when the Communist Party was at its height. Uh, Roughly, uh, last I heard, was around 100,000 members, which is um, so, and they exercise a very wide influence on elected, you know, in terms of elected officials. People in political activism are often going to counter DSA. And it's worth asking and it's worth exploring what how much or how little their founders ideas still influence those politics because that, and I would argue, it actually casts a very long shadow over DSA.
0: Well, let's let's hold off on that for just a second and ask very quickly, before we even get into that question, what is democratic socialism? I guess maybe how do people on the left understand it today how did harrington himself describe it and then maybe secondarily could you explain how that maybe differs from other interpretations of what that term
1: means sure democratic socialism it can it's got a wide variety of meanings but it's generally you say you can vote in socialism and of course that can the understanding of what socialism means is just as important. For a lot of people um, who call themselves democratic socialists now, it can mean anything from like a very vigorous version of the New Deal or the Great Society or the type of welfare state that historically existed in the Scandinavian countries. Sometimes it can mean like maybe just a non-totalitarian form of socialism, like it actually is anti-capitalist. But the key thing about the democratic socialism, uh, generally all its varieties is a rejection of any kind of revolutionary path to socialism. It's some kind of parliamentary, electoralist, gradualist view. And for Harrington, um, he did actually think that there was a future beyond um capitalism he just was very much he thought the next step was some kind was like sweden or the new deal and so he he didn't think that sweden or the new deal were necessarily socialist but he thought that they were kind of like this halfway house that like they had some state ownership and you know state planning but it wasn't it's it was still tied to capitalism. Something else I want to kind of emphasize is, is a lot of this is very theoretical, but in practice, it really, like, it, it, it actually does make sense to use the terms democratic socialism or social democracy interchangeably, because it's very amorphous how you get from capitalism to, you know, socialism, you know, if you're actually talking about a post-capitalist society. Because historic, like at least since like 1914, social democracies just meant some kind of regulated capitalism and whatnot. So this meant that since Harrington did envision a post-capitalist future, um, but did think that the next step was social democracy, that he was quite comfortable with those politics. He actually counted as his friends, many of the, uh, the leaders of, and presidents and prime ministers, who came out of the European uh, Social social Democratic Party. So he was friends with Franz Mitterrand, the leaders of Sweden, new members of the British Labour Party, the Israeli Labour Party as well. So for, the, for him, it really, it's like some kind of post-capitalist future was some kind of very long-term idea. One thing I will say that does differentiate Harrington from a lot of his cohorts in the Socialist International, all like these Social Democrats, is he is still describing himself as a Marxist and he is using Marxist terminology and thinking to understand it. Whereas people like Franz Fra Mitterrand really wasn't, or the Israeli Labor Party, they really weren't interested in Marxist theory, even as some kind of abstraction, whereas Harrington actually did try and situate his ideas within Marxism, what he called the democratic Marxism, which is the appendix of my book.
0: So what's the, what's the political calculus? What's the trajectory? I mean, does Harrington uh, formulate these ideas and the language around these ideas as a direct result of these sort of anti-communist movements of the late forties and early fifties that he comes out of that and tries to uh, sanitize left-wing uh, thinking and socialism, or is this something that is uniquely American in his view? How did he get, how did he arrive to this kind of distillation of his version of socialism?
1: Sure. So he, he's actually has a very interesting history. He starts out politically actually uh, with like the Catholic worker uh, movement of Dorothea Day, which is kind of this left-wing Catholicism. And he eventually joins the Socialist Party of Norman Thomas in the early 50s. And later, in like 52, 54, around then, he joins what uh, the uh, Independent Socialist League, which is led by Max Schachman. And Schachman is who I argue is his most important political mentor. Schachman was someone who was a founder of the Communist Party USA, a leading Trotskyist. He actually was at the founding convention of the Fourth International in 1938, but after um, 1940, Shackman broke with Trotsky and, and he kind of saw the Soviet Union as this evil empire of bureaucratic collectivism. And uh, by the time Harrington is aligning with Shackman, Shackman is pretty much openly coming to see the U.S. as a lesser evil and you know the, the communists as uh, hell-bent on world domination. So Harrington is adopting um, a lot of Shackman's ideas, particularly on how he characterizes the Soviet Union. Even after Harrington breaks with Shackman, he dedicates one of his books to him. So the, the influence is, uh, is long lasting. And Shackman develops a lot of the ideas that Harrington, not just on understanding the Soviet Union, but on orienting towards labor officialdom who are anti-communist, on orienting toward the Democratic Party, And I think, so it's not like Harrington originates this. He picks this up from Max Schachman. But I think Harrington does kind of refine it and really develop it into a full-blown strategy and worldview, whereas Schachman is still kind of working his way there. And furthermore, Harrington is, he is very much in line with like a lot of, again, like, uh, democratic socialists around the world at this time, where a lot of the founding members of NATO states in 1948 were led by social democratic parties, which were explicitly declaring themselves, we are democratic socialists, not totalitarian communists. And uh, Harrington is very much in line with that milieu. And you could kind of see this, you know, a lot of the figures he associates with, like, the New York intellectuals, they're very much involved with, like, the Congress of Cultural Freedom. Norman Thomas was, like, getting CIA money. Now, I want to emphasize that Harrington himself, there's no evidence that he was involved with the CIA or anything like that. I don't want to give that impression. But a lot of the people he was associated with were. That is um, not up for debate. So, basically, my point would be, like, it is kind of this, it's almost like socialism for anti-communists i guess is how you would put what he's developing and specifically in an american context
0: and in a sense it 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 sort of makes sense doesn't it i mean considering the period considering the cultural and social reaction <clears throat> of the you know the political character of it in the united states post war uh, it, it makes sense that those who would identify as socialists would sort of go out of their way to bend over backwards to make sure that everyone understood they were anti-Soviet, even if they were still socialist?
1: That's true. Uh, so it's since this is the early 50s, this is the high point of the Red Scare, McCarthyism. The Socialist Party had been eclipsed by the communists for a long time, and they were supporting the Korean War. And But the Red Scare was so pervasive that Max Schachman's group, which was under, there's no illusions that they support the Soviet Union at all in any respect but they are on like the attorney general's list of subversive organizations harrington himself has an fbi file he would have been you know if there had been some kind of national emergency in the 50s he would have been thrown in jail with the rest of them and again this is someone who has no no allegiance to the soviet union none of them so a lot of like they're they're, They want to differentiate themselves from the Communist Party and the Soviet Union, but also want to make sure that, you know, they can have a voice in American society. And that does mean pretty much repeating the dominant ethos, even if uh, the McCarthyites still want to haul them away, too.
0: Okay. So now this we're talking the late 40s and into the early 50s. Now bring us forward a few years, Doug. Uh, How does Michael Harrington become the quote unquote man who discovered poverty?
1: so he um this is like the late 50s early 60s by this point um he's joined the socialist party and he's actually rising to leadership in it and he's doing a lot of a lot of speaking on campuses and he's actually approached by um some editors he knows to like because he had written some articles on poverty to write a book on it and he is a little apprehensive about it but eventually he kind of decides to do that and he writes this book And the other America is probably, in my opinion, one of his best books. In the sense, it's very well written. It's very short. You can read it in an afternoon. It's only about one hundred fifty or so pages, and it it basically it's meant to attack this um, idea that had been prevalent at the end of the '50s that ideology no longer matters. You know, we've overcome poverty. We live in an age of affluence. And he's saying, like, listen, no, there are tens of millions of people living in poverty in the United States. And he describes that it. it's very journalistic, but it's very visceral, you know, and everything. Now, what makes this book like kind of hit, um, uh, beyond say, you know, a, a wider audience beyond like other tracks is probably almost more the review of the book than the book itself. It was reviewed at, either in the the New York Times, the New York Review books, I forget which, but it was by Dwight McDonald, who is one of the New York intellectuals. He wrote a very long and favorable review of the book. And this review of the book got to, um, it was basically got to the attention of John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time. And it's because Kennedy was thinking, let's do something about poverty. Let's do some kind of campaign. And he kind of found this. Now, uh, so that actually helped, McDonald's book not only got attention to the book, but Kennedy got involved, you know, was really excited about the book. Of course, Kennedy is killed and uh, Johnson is carrying on the campaign and he, you know, actually brings Harrington in as an advisor on the Great Society programs. He's there talking, you know, the White House for a few weeks. It's actually the closest he ever comes to any kind of political power about how much to spend and everything. So basically, if... Harrington—it's uh, part of the reason why Harrington actually could get in the White House and talk about poverty, and why his book could be picked up—is because it's not actually written as a socialist critique of poverty, which is important to emphasize. He actually says, "I don't want to do that. I don't want to emphasize like the criticism of capitalism or anything like that." He's—he's he's basically offering a very uh, moralistic liberal criticism, and he his proposals in the book are. We need to do the New Deal, but better. We need to complete it. And, you know, people like Johnson had been like, the New Deal was their bread and butter politics. And, you know, so it's like, of course he would pick up on that. Obviously, he wouldn't pick up on something that says, like, all power to workers councils or something like that. So, Harrington, there's a convergence there between them. And um, Harrington himself, when it comes to the Great Society, is he... He was critical of it in the sense he didn't think it went far enough he thought you could have done more you know more money should have been put in more programs should have been initiated but that said he was always would always defend the great society and it was pretty much why like his big reason for supporting johnson and whatnot so and harrington himself was actually a bit annoyed at the fact that he was always introduced as the man who discovered poverty and, you know, wrote that book is like, I wrote all these other books, which is true, but none of them are as good as that one.
0: It's interesting because if you think about the timing of this um, here comes this uh, socialist and forgive me for my voice. I'm still recovering from a cold here, but that Harrington becomes sort of this I don't want to say figurehead, but this sort of figure associated with the issue of poverty at the time that, you know, the, Early the early stages of like the baby boomers are beginning to come of age, the 60s beginning to take shape, as far as what we think of as the quote unquote 60s, right? Counterculture, youth culture, all of these things. And so Harrington is kind of this interesting figure because while he comes from the left at a time when the left seems like it's insurgent, he's still a part from all of that. So talk a little bit about Harrington vis-a-vis the other issues of the day. How was Harrington with regard to uh, young people, young left-wing activists, the Vietnam War? Where did he fall on these other issues that were defining for that generation?
1: So it's kind of interesting. Like Harrington is, um, he's only in his early 30s in in the 1960s. And he was a rapidly rising figure in the Socialist Party. And he was actually very excited by some of the fervent, fervent on campuses, the civil rights movement, which he was involved with. And He counted Martin Luther King Jr. as a friend. Uh, of course, he was also involved in red baiting in the civil rights movement as well. Um, but he was really excited about the possibilities of the new left. In fact, um, people like Tom Hayden looked up to Michael Harrington. And Harrington was involved in the founding of the Students for a Democratic Society, which is the most, probably one of the most important organizations in the 1960s. Basically, SDS was originally the youth wing of the League of Industrial Democracy, which was connected to the Socialist Party. It's a long kind of organizational history there. So, Harrington was connected with the parent body and everything and pretty much they wanted to rebrand themselves. And Harrington was involved in this process that came out with the Port Huron Statement in 1962. And and if you actually read the Port Huron Statement, the full version, it it encompasses a great many of Harrington's ideas. There's orientation toward the Democratic Party, the civil rights movement, the labor movement. It's explicitly anti-communist. And so on some levels, it actually, it's pretty much either a left liberalism or kind of a social democratic manifesto. But Harrington himself actually had a lot of problems with the pyrrhus statement because, and SDS at that moment, because he thought that they were insufficiently anti-communist, to put it bluntly, because even though the pyrrhus statement rejects the Soviet Union, and they also reject the Cold War, and they actually put a little more emphasis on the blame of uh, the United States for starting it, which is for Harrington, that's a no, no, pretty much you have to be anti-communist. And at the founding of the, you know, SDS, they actually had uh, an observer from the young communist league who was like an 18 year old kid. And for Harrington, this was equivalent to being, you know, having Joseph Stalin in the same room. So pretty much he is infuriated that, you know, he thinks that these, SDS is going too far. And he pretty much brings people like Tom Hayden in and ha- pretty much puts them on trial, and it's interrogating them for, you know, being soft on communism. Changes the locks on their offices, and you know, so people Hayden is actually heartbroken about this. It's like the only time I've ever felt any sympathy for Tom Hayden. Um, but eventually, cooler heads prevail. People like Norman Thomas. And Harrington kind of makes up with SDS in, in 1962. But he will apologize for his behavior at that event. But he Harrington says something else. It's like, you know, even if we didn't break over this, if I had behaved differently, the break would have come. And the break would have come over Vietnam. Because when the Vietnam War really picks up in 1964, 65, SDS is really involved in the anti-war movement. They're holding demonstrations. And I do want to emphasize here, although SDS is opposed to the war, it's not like, I I don't want, there's, Harrington himself is not so much like, let's bomb the hell out of them. The the issue is not their opposition to the war. If you read Harrington's writings, he is very clear he's opposed to the war. The issue of division is over how they oppose the war. SDS is willing to do things like hold demonstrations, burn draft cards, militant actions they're not willing to no toe to the democratic party they're even willing to have communists at their demonstrations and to support victory for the vietnamese communists for harrington you can't do that you have to you know you have to stay respectable. you can't embarrass your democratic allies you know because he's because you can't get kicked out of that that's where change happens for him you can't do things like burn draft cards or break the law and you certainly can't you know blame, you know, have communists in, in your demonstrations or support the National Liberation Front, because obviously for him, both sides, but mostly the communists, are to blame for the Vietnam War. So this is the division. And eventually it does lead to a split between SDS eventually formally disavows its parent body. And Harrington is left, you know, adrift at that point. And he is aghast at like the... um currents of radicalism that come up in the 1960s. Black nationalism, you know, the, the women's movement, anything that has a revolutionary tinge to it, he sees as there's a new Jacobinism, you know, it's the proto-totalitarianism in, in you know, coming, coming up. And, you know, people like Irving Howe, who's a friend of Harrington, writes these diatribes against the new left, you know, for embracing like Che Guevara and Marxism-Leninism. They think they should stay respectable and whatnot. So pretty much, at Harrington, he is initially very supportive of the new left, but as it turns to revolution, he is very much against it. Although I do want to emphasize he always wants to work with moderates in the new left.
0: We're going to have to break in a minute, but before we do, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the voices on the left at the time who were opposing Harrington who made very explicit their oppositions and their criticisms um uh you highlight a couple of them in the book i'd like to ask you about them one of them who's close to a lot of our hearts here at counterpunch peter cameo peter cameo has some pretty interesting criticisms of uh michael harrington so tell us a little bit about peter cameo maybe one or two others who uh had critiques of harrington at that time from his left
1: sure so peter cameo at the time um was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, so they were a Trotskyist organization at the time, and he was running for vice presidents, uh, you know, uh, their vice presidential candidate, and this is actually 76, it's a little after, but he is pretty much saying to Harrington, like, you are a Democrat, you're not a socialist, you are just thinking that you can work with more, you know, people who are less racist, less sexist, you know, to somehow to get rid of the, you know, racism and sexism, So he is very much against, like, Harrington's, like, electoral um, and reformist orientation. And there's a a good series of debates between them on those questions, where Harrington at least, you know, does, you know, respond to those points. Um, Another person who kind of, um, from Harrington's left, who passed away a few years ago, was David McReynolds, who is um, a socialist, a member of the Socialist Party USA. Um, he was a longtime pacifist. He, I think he ran for president a few times and he was aghast at the socialist parties, pretty much um, non-committal to oppose the Vietnam War. So those are just two people, But anyone who was in also, if you're looking to like the revolutionary groups that came out of SDS, none of them would have anything to do with Harrington. They thought he was too reformist, that he was soft on liberalism, soft on imperialism as well.
0: Well, and I bring that up, of course, because it is so directly parallels some of the conversations we have today about electoralism and the role of the Democratic Party and the role of the left vis-a-vis, you know, U.S. politics. And many of those criticisms of Harrington and his devotion to electoralism are many of the same criticisms we hear today.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, he he actually has a full-blown strategy it's something called realignment and that's what he he basically says that there's this new class that's emerged after world war ii and it's these technicians these bureaucrats these uh you know students who are you know this new petty bourgeois however you want to put it and he says in eastern europe all these people essentially became the administrators of totalitarianism But in the united states that there's a possibility that they could become the uh, foundation for a new majority and he basically thinks the new class should get together with like you know the civil rights movement you know moderates and the women's movement and also the labor bureaucracy because he says you know unlike in western europe that has you know socialist parties of whatever sort it's like that didn't happen in the u.s there was um there was a, you know, he thinks that a secret socialist or labor party was formed by the AFL-CIO, but it took place under the tent of the Democratic Party. So he thinks um, socialist politics can only really happen with engagement of the Democratic Party, and he basically wants this new majority to transform the Democratic Party into a European-style social democratic formation and all the racists and capitalists go to the Republicans, that this new Democratic Party will somehow make a welfare state and then somehow make socialism in the long term. And I bring this up because, and Harrington, first of all, says, this is the only place where a beginning can happen. This is like the whole linchpin for his strategy is to transform the Democratic Party. And if you look at a lot of debates today, even if people don't know who Harrington is or they don't reference him or whatever, How much of those debates are basically like, you know what, yeah, you have all these great ideas about socialism or whatever, but we have to do something here in the Democratic Party by electing a better class of Democrats, by, you know, primarying this person or pushing this policy legislation. And a lot of this, you know, it just echoes Harrington. He just kind of actually articulated it, you you know, very, very well even if it didn't work out in practice at all.
0: Let's take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to pick up right there talking about the lasting legacy of Harrington, how it uh, has imprinted itself in, in some ways on the organization that he left behind. And on the left, broadly speaking, we are chatting with Doug Green. Again, the book, you should get yourself a copy "A Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism, published by Zero Books. Get a copy for yourself, get a copy for your friends, and we will be right back. You're asking
2: what is socialism and what it really means It's equal rights for every man Regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Listen as I tell you No man no better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is Lincoln hands. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness, that's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes, saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. One man have too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and heads Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is people pulling together it means Socialism is Love for your brother Socialism is
0: And we are back chatting with Doug Green. Again, the book, A Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism. Again, this is the... Part of the reason we're having the conversation is not to air opinions or grievances about DSA or about any organization. It's about understanding the nature of the landscape of the left in the United States to the extent that such a thing even exists and to uh, really understand how some of these historical threads have brought us forward to today. Because, of course, as uh, I don't know that we said this specifically, but as we were alluding to in the first part of the conversation, DSA really exploded in popularity and in the public imagination after the 2016 election the election of Donald Trump etc and so it bears you know, looking at what this organization means, where the politics come from. And so with that being said, Doug, I want to just jump right back into what we were talking about before the break. You were hitting on some of the ways in which Harrington's ideas continue to influence DSA today. Can you flesh out a little bit more? What are some of those uh, competing tendencies that we see both within DSA back then and then that we see reported on all the time today?
1: Right. So back in Harrington's day, DSA was founded in 1982 as a fusion of two groups, and Harrington was its undisputed leader. And they pretty much, their big thing was to basically support the Democrats. So interestingly, even though Harrington supported some kind, on paper anyway, supported like insurgent movements, he didn't support the Rainbow Coalition in 1984, which was kind of the best shot that ever happened for realignment. He did support them in 1988, although that didn't really go anywhere. Um, he he was, But he was probably more in tune with supporting the establishment candidates, whether Mondale or uh, Dukakis. And he's probably the only person in the world who was excited about the prospects of Michael Dukakis, I might add. Um, but after he died... Um, a, it was 1989. So this is, you know, Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union collapses, and this hits like every left-wing group in the United States, very hard. And DSA formally abandons realignment sometime in the 90s, and but they're kind of like this inside-outside strategy for a while. So, you know, at one point in 2000, they support like three candidates, but mostly they support the Democrats in presidential elections. And... When you come to 2016, you know, first of all, they get, you know, they get some supporters who new members who supported Bernie Sanders, but they really exploded after Trump. And, you know, they went from something like under 10,000 to, again, around 100,000 today. So in terms of like where you see Harrington's legacy in DSA, well, there are a few places. First is a magazine called Jacobin. Um, which was founded, I think, around 2010 or 11. I forget the year. And the founder of Jacobin, Bashkar Sankara, counts Harrington as an influence very much. Um, and, you know, I don't want to... Jacobin is not strictly like a DSA org, org, uh, you know, magazine, but it does have a lot of DSA contributors. But if you read, like, Bashkar Sankara's articles in... Um, in a, in Jacobin, a lot of it is just repeating like the type of Harrington type strategy of supporting the Democrats and whatnot. So in 2016 and 2020, you know they were pretty much gung ho for Bernie Sanders. There was like literally no criticism at all in any way. So you see a lot of that type of influence in terms of what Jacobin is saying. And I do want it. So the other way about D, uh, Harrington's influence. And I, before I get to that, you know, DSA is not, you know, completely like a monolith or completely unchanging. So after 2016, you know, with the new influx of members, they left the Socialist International, they embraced boycott, divestment sanctions against Israel. And you've had all kinds of study groups in there. You've had, you know, with Marx, uh, you know, Trotsky or whatever. You, and you've even had, uh, you know, mutual aid and whatnot. And all kinds of caucuses, but a lot of their activity is like, it's just like, you know, it's electing Democrats, AOC, you know, they have like about a hundred or so members uh, who are elected to some offices, Democrats. And a lot of that Harrington would have no problem with at all. And you know, I have to ask, like, how real is your commitment to boycott divestment sanctions when you vote, when you count as your members, you know, Jamal Bowman or AOC who vote for the IDF or to fund it, or you campaign for Bernie Sanders, who's voted for that as well. So there is that. So I actually say, like, I don't think, you know, I think 90 plus percent of DSA members don't know who Harrington is, have never read him or anything. What I will say is I think in the organization as a whole and in a lot of what it does is uh, Harringtonism is basically this unspoken common sense, you know, what Althusser might call the spontaneous ideology. And so because it's, you know, voting for Democrats, a reformist vision of socialism, you know, this kind of opportunism that is very prevalent, that's all kind of in tune with Harrington. And you honestly don't really need a big theoretical apparatus to do to justify that. That's like in the, the era of American politics. DSA is just kind of expressing that in its own unique way. Now there are, you know, they're I bring up the Jamal Bowman because um, that's a very recent thing with DSA is uh, he's with their congressman who voted for like the Iron Dome and among members that there's been, you know, some pushback to that, you know, even calls to censure or expel him. But the fact that Bowman is in DSA and has not been removed, that's kind of the lingering influence of Harrington, who was himself a very, you know, fierce Zionist.
0: So I think it's important to ask not only, you know, where do we critique uh, Harrington and DSA, but what does it represent? What did Harrington understand about solidarity, international solidarity in those days? Because it's hard to see where the socialist internationalism comes in based on his views vis-a-vis uh vietnam or the uh you know the communist bloc or what have you so where did how did harrington view socialism uh as an international sort of project and uh to what extent does that view shape how dsa sees
1: international solidarity so, in terms of how Harrington saw socialism, um, I, I, it's worth getting into what he thought of third world revolutions, which it's it's a very strange view. On the one hand, he thinks like that there can be no development under capitalism, you know, because of the way the international market, etc., is structured. But he thought like any attempt to move past it would basically lead to totalitarianism. So he pretty much says, you know, you, people in the third world need to just kind of be nice and push for like some kind of international new deal and everything. So he was pretty, um, he, he, he was not a fan of pretty much most third world uh, revolutionary attempts. When he went to Nicaragua in the 1980s, he's like, I couldn't help feel sympathy, but I didn't want to look at this like, you know, the way Fellow travelers looked at the Soviet Union like that's an issue when that country was under imperialist attack and all that. So he was, um, you know, he pretty much saw third world socialist attempts as foredoomed. He was, you know, he was opposed to the, you know, Palestinian struggle. He was much more uh, sympathetic to, you know, Western European, Scandinavian social democrats and the Israeli labor. He saw that as much more. Uh, what he 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 saw that as much more in line with his politics, and he he looked, like it's very strange to me because like um, this was someone who like would call like Che Guevara a totalitarian, but saw Robert McNamara, who was at one point head of the IMF of the World Bank, one of those organizations, as someone truly committed to the poor. You know, someone who had quite a history in, you know, Vietnam, you know, murdering lots of people. So Harrington was very much, you know, you could call, you know, he was not completely, you know, gung-ho all the time. He supported detente with the Soviet Union by the 80s and perestroika and that kind of stuff. But this was someone who had, you know, counted these, these European social democrats as his allies. Like at one point, he was at a meeting of the Socialist International in Peru. It's in 1986. and they're meeting there. while, the Peruvian president is carrying out a counterinsurgency campaign and its government is massacring imprisoned guerrillas the same time. It's like if that's you know what you consider compatible with socialism, I'm, I'm not sure. In terms of DSA today in international solidarity, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. On the one hand, um, I'd almost call it schizophrenic. So you have their members who are in elected offices, and you know they sometimes will tweet, you know, okay things, but they vote for these bills supporting, you know, um, the IDF, democracy change in Venezuela, scare quotes, and and the U.S. military. You know, AOC has done that. Sometimes though, they have members who have gone on like um, you know visits to South America and published statements in um support of, you know, lifting the blockade on Cuba or what have you. But again, it's like eventually these two positions really cannot coexist for long term. You can't say that you're opposed to US imperialism while your most prominent members vote to fund it. So it'd be interesting to see how that gets resolved. I don't like I'm a historian, so I don't like making too many predictions on the future, but um I know that does come up in like debates around Bowman that have happened in DSA as of late.
0: So I'm going to ask you to um, strain yourself if you can uh, uh, and really see if you can tell us, is there anything useful about Harrington's legacy not only i mean you can you can obviously answer this question by saying that he's a foil and you know using him as an example of how not to think but also i mean i do think that it's fair to say that this is one of the most significant individual figures on the left in the united states in the you know the second half of the 20th century and uh is there anything that we could take from him that's useful
1: um my short answer would be no But my longer answer is, um, I think as a writer, Harrington's actually a very good writer. Like he is actually very good at communicating ideas and making, you know, abstract concepts like comprehensible. I just think what he makes comprehensible and accessible is just not very good. As a writer, I I actually did like a book he wrote. Um, it's called *The Politics of God's Funeral*. It's kind of like an intellectual history of what happens after religion stops being the guiding force in the Western world. I actually like that in terms of its a lot of its intellectual history. I don't like any the political prescriptions in it. But I I I I do think a big part of the reason like why it was worth looking at Harrington is as a foil because he's. He's not a fool. He's not a stupid man at all. He's very intelligent, very widely read. And he really is good at taking a lot of these ideas and actually formulating them into a system. And I, so I do think a big part of it is the foil, but also just like the lasting influence of him is um, important to how that kind of socialism almost you know, gets to be... It's close to mainstream, I guess, as it can in this country. And in that sense, like, that's worth looking at, like, how that happens. Like, it's worth looking also at just how someone who was initially committed on very good grounds to fighting poverty, on fighting oppression, kind of gets into a position where they're defending, like, you know, American imperialism. How does that happen to somebody? You know, how do we understand that? I mean... So my, my, my longer answer is like, there are certain books of his, like I found like interesting to read, but in terms of like a political practice and a theory, I, I'm actually for pretty much tossing Harrington um, pretty much. I read him. So like a lot of people don't have to cause, um, but, but also just understanding like how the pull of, the dominant ideology in politics works on a person because again, Harrington was not someone who was just some malicious mustache twirling villain. I think he was genuinely believed what he said. I just, but how you get there and you just can kind of see that because it does happen to many leftists today. Like you think I'm going to change the system from the inside and that changes them. And you can kind of see that on Harrington on like a larger scale,
0: I guess. For uh, any of the people who might be uh, coming across your book and maybe this podcast and, you know, who have either already had experiences with DSA or were curious about it or whatever, um, I guess what, I don't want to say advice, but what information would you want to convey? Not so much your opinion about DSA, which is obviously not terribly high and you know, as far as a political organization today, but what would you want people to look at? What would you want people to consider about as they formulate their own ideas about socialism in the United States in the 21st century, given the overlapping crises that we're facing both in this country and globally? Um, if it's not Harrington and it's not the DSA as it exists Today, what should people be thinking about, Doug?
1: I mean, my I mean, my first advice would, of course, be to read my book for for um, understanding Harrington. But beyond that, I think some of the biggest things that we can do on you know for people who are wondering about where to go or what to or what have you is educate yourself. It's so like the amount of people I see who can't get like basic socialist marxist uh, ideas like down you know i think it's important to like you know you you study you know go back to you know the marx engels lenin all of them but also to keep your ear on the ground find like-minded comrades try to develop a principled you know politics that is flexible enough to intervene in the world world and to understand history like paul like ideas and politics don't just appear ex nihilo that there are material conditions that shape them and if we understand that history we can kind of work through in in a lot of ways like how to develop a more radical politics and i think on some level it it does mean kind of i rejecting the type of politics that harrington put uh in play that he was advocating which were very much constrained to what the ruling class thinks is possible. And this, it sounds very cliche, but, you know, think outside that box, reject that box. Cause if you are not bound by what is uh, deemed possible by liberals and social Democrats, it kind of opens up a whole new slew of possibilities. I think something else I recommend aside from studying theory history is find like-minded comrades work through it together and, you know, forge your own path. Don't, you know, don't let the election cycle determine your politics. And also, I think if we're going to have socialism in the U.S. in some way, that it you know it does mean actually rejecting the Democratic Party and trying to develop our own organizations, mutual aid, political parties, etc., that are not beholden to the type of um, imperial interests that Harrington thought were essential.
0: I think that's very well said. Thank you for that. Uh, again, the book, everybody needs to get a copy. There are so many people in your life that probably should read this A Failure of Vision Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism from Zero Books. Doug Green is the author. Also, pick up a copy of his other book. This one is also a great read Communist Insurgent Blanqui's Politics of Revolution. Follow Doug on social media. He is a wealth of information. Doug Green, thanks for the book. Thanks for the conversation and coming on. Uh, coming back to counterpunch really appreciate
1: it well thank you so much for having me
0: listeners as always thank you again for the continued support and we will talk again next time